Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Romani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? I got obsessed with economics, strangely enough. So this week, Moderna, the pharmaceutical company, released information that they had found a pretty good vaccine that was working, and the stock markets went up. And there were quite a few memes about this. Diet Prada posted this happening and just put science below and claps and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, actually, we both come from the humanities. We both know about politics and society and culture. But economics as a sort of subject and a science... I guess we're missing that. So I did, and I invited you to do Paul Krugman's masterclass on economics. And Paul Krugman is an economist who has won the Nobel Prize for his work. He had a column in the New York Times. He is from the US, so a lot of this masterclass was based around the US. But then what was really clear is that economics is a global system and way of seeing things. That was one lesson. He also said a few things that were kind of interesting because it seems to be this balance between science and a sort of data approach way of looking at things. But he also talked about the stories we tell, which is interesting because in the end it's all stories. And he has this brilliant line, money is a useful fiction created by the government. He had quite a few things in this that blew both of our minds and we were just screaming over the phone about what but one thing was that we also asked a lot of questions to the people that we love our family plus just anyone we could grab a hold of do you get economics vaguely <laughs> can you explain this to me like i'm an idiot so we cleared some things up though i feel this week about the economy and yeah. and we're here to uh, keep you informed like we're kind of trying to keep ourselves informed the other thing that paul krugman does say is that we live in a society where you know there's a lot of fake news everyone has an opinion and it's all of our responsibility as enlightened citizens to sort of know how economics functions and it is a central part of the world we live in today yeah so i got completely fascinated by the stock market. This wasn't really in his masterclass, but I was just curious about, like I have this image of a room of people yelling and screaming and on the phone and all these things were happening. I never really fully understood what was going on, what's happening, what is this? And so I did a little bit of research into the history of the stock market. So the New York Stock Exchange was started in 1792 on Wall Street in New York under a buttonwood tree. And then the NASDAQ, which has been described as the cooler younger brother of New York Stock Exchange, was founded in 1971. But actually, the stock market goes back a lot further. The blueprint for what is considered a stock market comes from the Dutch East India Trading Company when they couldn't finance their voyages, so they sold out stocks. The concept of a stock market goes back much further. So in the 1300s, Venetian money lenders began to sell debt issued to other lenders and to individual investors. In the 1500s, Belgium's exchange dealt exclusively in promissory notes and bonds. And then in the 1600s, we have the East India Trading Company that issued the first stocks that led to a financial boom. And back in the day, there used to be a single shareholder of each company. So this is back in the mm -hmm. 1900s. So this is where all these really rich people come from in the U.S. Vanderbilt had the monopoly on railways, Rockefeller on oil. But this changed in the 20th century. And so lately, what they've been doing is that they've actually been linking CEOs' salaries to how the stock market is doing. 
linking the salary and the stock market encourages CEOs to cut costs. Obviously, this is very simplified, but it encourages them to cut corners. And then what they do is they'll use company money to buy back stock so that the demand for the stock goes up so that it seems like they're really in demand. And so then if the stocks go up, their salary go up. So focusing on profit for themselves and for the shareholders, not for the employees or the product they are producing, which means that we see a decline in the product, but we see CEOs' salaries going up. Yeah, in his masterclass, Krugman says something about cutting taxes and how cutting taxes never really works to stimulate the economy because of this exact thing because it's very unlikely because people think that if you cut corporate taxes they will employ more people or pay their workers more which they just won't because all of those profits of less taxes will just go to the people who own the stock and the people who own stock are generally richer so i learned that cutting taxes is called supply side economics and paul krugman describes this as a zombie idea that keeps on chugging along. So the idea is that you cut taxes in order to stimulate the economy. And when we had our lockdown this year, I think Germany did the same, right? They, they cut the VAT, for example. But he says that cutting taxes has never, whenever it's been done to stimulate growth, it's never actually worked. Because one of the truths about economy is that every sale is also a purchase, so it's cyclical. So if the government stops spending, stops collecting taxes, they're an integral part of taxes being spent and stimulating growth so that other people can continue to work, and it's just a cyclical thing. But going back to stock markets in general and the fact that Moderna did something and then all the stock markets went up, so after doing this masterclass, I think they went up because everyone is predicting that people will be able to get back to their jobs, go shopping again. There will be a lot more consuming. And if there's a lot more consuming, all of those companies will do really well. But it's kind of like a future prediction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this stuff is all future predictions. A lot of the economy is future predictions. So in his lecture, Is Capitalism Devouring Democracy, Yanis Forafakis, who is a Greek economist and the Greek finance minister, talks about how there's this large misconception about how banks work. He explains how people basically think if you earn money, you take it to the bank, and then the bank keep it in a massive vault, and then if then someone else comes to borrow money, they take that money out of the vault and give it to them. But he says in reality the banks are making up money that does not exist. So in his example, he says, you go to the bank and you borrow 10,000. Someone types in the number 10,000 into the computer, and then that appears in your bank account. So they're hoping, basically, that you will make enough money to be able to pay them that money back plus interest. He uses a funny example where he says it's like they stretch an arm into the future and pull the money into the present to give it to you with the hopes that you will make it back so that in the future that money can exist. Banks work on imaginary money. So Paul Krugman, he talks about the recession in 2008. What happened was the banks would start lending out subprime mortgages to people where they weren't necessarily sure if they could pay the money back or not. Now, you want to buy debt because you can make money off of debt. Because obviously, when you let borrow money from a bank, you will end up paying back more than you have borrowed. So if you buy debt from another bank, you are buying profit, basically. Future profit, but you are buying profit. So what happened was you had banks lending out all these subprime mortgages, and then investment bankers would sell this debt. 
and keep making money off it. And they kept selling it and they kept selling it and they kept selling it until eventually we got to the point where people defaulted on their mortgages and the whole thing collapsed and we have the financial crisis of 2008. And then Rina and I got stuck on the 2008 crisis because the government bailed out the banks, but normally the government is in debt to banks. So who has the money? Yes, so who has the money? Jeff Bezos? That's a good point. The answer to that is it's still hurting my brain to think about it, Mm. but we think that the government borrowed from banks and they did the same thing where they reached into the future and lent out more money to the government. After World War II, for example, in Paul Krugman, this is stuff that we still haven't quite got, but we're going to figure out together. Or not. You have to listen to the end of the episode, whether we do. Yeah, so Paul Krugman says that the US was in a tremendous amount of debt after World War II, for example. What happened is the economy grew so much that they never actually finished paying off the debt. It was rendered kind of irrelevant by the fact that the economy grew. So we're not sure exactly what happened there. What we are sure of, though, is that in the 2008 crash, because the... US government bailed out the banks, all the bankers were kind of fine, and everyone with stocks were kind of fine. But because it was a housing crisis, the people who, you know, it really affected, they were living at homes that they, you know, they were eventually chucked out and stuff. Those people did not sort of recover from this crash. And a lot of this has to do with the growing inequality of our society. He also says, for example, if you're a millennial, you went out into the job market at this time when there was a recession after the 2008 crash, you'll probably never recover your lost head start that the boomers got. Another thing that he really explains is why the rich people keep on getting richer. Well, there are two different things. There's a a difference between income and wealth. Mm -hmm. Wealth are your sort of assets that grow alone. So how much land you own, whatever things you have, that's wealth. And rich people are accumulating wealth at a bigger portion than the economy is growing so in the end they have more and more portion of the economy and Paul Krugman says a really interesting thing that it used to be like this in Belle Epoque Europe and you know ages ago where you just had wealth concentrated in the hands of very few then there was a weird middle period to do with Truman and New Deal and Roosevelt where they spent a lot of money and kept the banks in check and there was a middle class in the US and then now we're going back even further than we were before to concentrating wealth in a few hands. And in his words, we are on the march to oligarchy, which brings us on to Jeff Bezos. So in Wired, there's a really interesting article called Every Tech Company Wants to Be a Bank, Someday at Least. In this article, they talk about how the tech companies want to move into the banking sphere. So Apple, Facebook, Google, Uber are all trying to start banks or some way move into that field. Actually, my brother has an Amazon credit card, but it is backed by Chase Bank, so it's not a credit card on its own. They don't have bank accounts as of yet. So the article kind of emphasizes how for tech giant, profit appears to be slowing down. Facebook warned investors last month of a headwind. You know, they make sure to point out that iPhone photos can only get so crisp, Amazon shipping can only get this much faster, and that these tech companies are sort of looking to Asia, where WeChat, which is the most popular messaging app, has monopolized every aspect of people's lives. 
And I quote, in Beijing, it's embarrassing to pull out a credit card rather than a QR code that links to your WeChat account. And Financial, the banking arm of Alibaba, is far bigger than Goldman Sachs, the bank that has helped Apple issue its credit cards. On the same app you use for news and games and texting, you can also get loans, credits, and manage your investments. So basically, it's kind of an inefficiency thing in that sense, because if Facebook already, just as an example, already knows everything about your life, they can predict what you want to do so they can sell you things and then they can help you buy it. In fact, for Amazon, it would actually make sense to have their own banking accounts because then they cut out the middleman and so there are no transaction fees. So moving into banking is beneficial for these tech giants. They feel like it's also about power, right? Because as we said, the government does borrow from banks and who has all the money. Like it's literally Jeff Bezos has all the money and the government needs that money. He's yeah. going to be in charge of policy. And it's kind of what's happening now and why we've got this extreme polarization because the people who have the money, like these corporations, they want the cutting corporate tax, not the normal people, but they're the donors in the US and they wield a lot of power in other mm-hmm. countries too. I know in the UK as well, people with money donate to the parties. And then those economic interests and political interests sort of get tied together. The other thing that Yanis says is that in our capitalist system, finance is now and bankers are central to everything because there's a produce on one side and there's a seller on the other side, but you need the bank in the middle. He does a really nice metaphor or he explains it really nicely with in the feudal system, you began with the product and then financial gain came at the end. Whereas in the system that we have nowadays, finances has to come first. So he's the example of saying, if you are a peasant toiling on the land, then you make your product and then you give some of it off to the Lord. And then the Lord takes that product and sells it for profit. So profit and financing is all the way at the end. But when the peasants were expelled from the land and sort of sheep were put on the land, then the Lords would, they would rent out the land to the peasants for them to be able to use it to then pay rent. So If the peasants didn't have any money, the Lord had to give them money. So financing was step one and product came later. And then later on, even the reason that actually sheep, literally sheep replaced peasants is that we became a kind of globalized economy where the peasants were no longer just working to grow, as he calls them, stupid little vegetables. (laughs) When the landlord could actually have sheep because certain commodities like wool or steel or whatever had more international value so you could trade them and make more money rather than just having a few people work for bread and produce some food on your land you could use it in a wider economic way paul krugman in his master class he talks about how when globalization happened so he uses a very specific example of the american and the canadian industry and about how the Canadian automobile industry focused on making only one model of a car. So they became super efficient and good at making this one car. So it helped the automobile industry. And he goes on to elaborate that basically in like a globalized world, different countries have become hyper-specialized in certain things and certain products. And there was so something absolutely beautifully naive about this. Because I guess with all theory, whether it's political or cultural, whatever, they look so good on paper but they fail to take into consideration the fact that humans are ridiculous and, you know, terrible creatures because in this harmonized world that he's talking about, 
you can't ever have war or people get angry or disagreements with one another because then the system fails. You have this beautiful, efficient system that only works if we're always on good terms with one another. Yeah, so he's talking about like how a plane is manufactured, for example, you get the steel from one place and you get the upholstery for the seats from another place, you do the design in another place, and then the plane comes together beautifully, efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. And he uses this example specifically when he talks about China, because he says that we actually buy more than we sell to China. Here he's talking about the USA, and he says that this makes a lot of people very, very angry, but in fact, it is in his words, a statistical illusion because, yeah, the product might have been assembled in China, but a part of it came from Korea, a part of it came from Japan, a part of it came from Germany. So it's a globalized system to produce one small thing. And I love the shade that he throws at the president or former, well, still president of the United States. A lot of people don't get this and they keep harping, harping on about China without seeing the bigger picture of how things are actually made. And that essentially he calls Trump stupid. He also makes a good point about in this globalized world, for example, which we covered in our sustainable fashion episode about the fact that a lot of workers in Bangladesh are severely, severely underpaid for the labor they do to provide us with cheap clothes. And he says, of course, that's not right, and it's morally wrong. But he also points out that from an economic point of view, Bangladesh doesn't have any other resources apart from really cheap labor. And it's a sad situation, but that is the situation. And that if we all stopped buying clothes from Bangladesh, we would make those really poor people even poorer. And he says, with globalization, he describes the shape of the elephant, like who gained and who lost from globalization. And he says, well, a lot of people lost, obviously, those working class blue collar workers in the US or really, really, really poor people in India and China. But then it did actually benefit poor people, really poor people who became less poor. And it also benefited the middle class in places like India and China. They grew in wealth during this time. So it's very interesting, this global perspective that he gives. And he does say also, even though it is a little bit US-centric because he's based in the US, he does say China is basically the center of the world. This also goes back to what Noam Chomsky says in his lecture, where he talks about there are some problems in this world that are so immediate, he cites global warming as one of them, that you can't wait to fix the system to address the problem. You have to work with the existing framework to address the issue. And that's the same thing, right? We need to have better working conditions and better wages for people in Bangladesh. But maybe we have to work within the existing system so that we don't jeopardize these people's lives even more. That would be putting pressure on the companies here, on the government to provide legislation that makes the companies here more responsible in Bangladesh, but it does not mean not buying from Bangladesh at all or not buying garments made in Bangladesh at all because that would be devastating, even more devastating for the people there. So that brings us on to our three things to be a better human this week. Number one is kind of staying informed about economics. I think a lot of us avoid it, especially I know for this podcast we have a lot of people who are into culture and things like that, so it is a bit more numbery and science driven but it is about stories in the end paul krugman recommends skimming mainstream sources in the morning new york Times, washington post bloomberg and vox that any recommends hyperlink hopping from there just to get a bit more of a better informed view on what's happening in the world economically he also cites two sources for data one is the oecd 
And the other is Fred, which is the American version of like all of the American statistics. And also the World Bank and the IMF are places where you can access a whole load of statistics if you do want to teach yourself further. Thing two, read skeptically. When you're reading about economics, is there an argument or is it just an assertion? Is there a logical train of thought you can follow? Is there evidence? If not, this is bad and you should be critical of it. Don't be tricked by style and forcefulness and strong opinions. Make sure that there are actual facts behind what this person is saying. And related to this, thing three, avoid writers that never make mistakes. It kind of means that they're not honest and they don't really learn from their mistakes. As he points out, economists do make predictions and do tell stories. And if an economist doesn't change their point of view, then you shouldn't trust them. They should be able to let the data speak and revision is good. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.